it's possible that the subject of Christ in the church might not seem relevant to you. You might be wondering, why am I devoting a sermon to this topic, especially in light of the fact that Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is all about marriage. And I realize that this is the key thought of this passage, that Paul is teaching about Christian marriage, redeeming marriage. And that is why I have devoted two sermons to the wife's role in redeeming marriage and three sermons to the husbands on their role in redeeming marriage. Yet I'm standing before you for the second time talking about Christ in the church. And guess what? I'm going to stand before you, Lord willing, a third time. And really, I could stand before you more times on this particular subject of Christ and the church. And the reason why I'm taking the time to do this is because this is a subject that is relevant to living the Christian life. When it comes to our walk with God, you, you might not recognize it, I might not realize it, but Christ and the church is foundational to living a life that pleases God. One of the passages that makes this clear is the one that we're looking at. When Paul talks about marriage, at the core of what he says is the relationship between Christ and the church. You really can't redeem marriage unless you understand that special connection and bond between the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. But it's not just in our passage. If you go back in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul prays that these Christians might get a sense of a knowledge and a sense of understanding of the greatness of God's power. And the way that Paul presents the greatness of God's power is that he reminds the readers of the relationship between Christ and the church, that Christ has been exalted over all things, including the church, the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, if you don't understand the relationship between Christ and the church, you won't understand your rags to riches story. You might not realize it, but you have a rags to riches story. Each believer in Jesus Christ does. Paul says that when we come into this world, we're dead, spiritually dead, in trespasses and sins. That's our raggedy condition. But because of God's love, because of God's mercy, because of his grace, God has made us alive together with Christ. And God has raised us up together with Christ. God has seated us together with Christ in the heavenly places. So I realize you're seated here in these pews at Fairview, but if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, from God's point of view, you are seated with Christ 
in the heavenly places. You're already in heaven. It's just a matter of time before you get there. And all of that is because of our relationship with Christ. Each time when Paul says, you've been made alive, you've been raised up, you're seated, it's always in connection with Jesus Christ. And even in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul commands his readers to be imitators of God. What an awesome responsibility that you and I have the obligation, the responsibility as Christians to be imitators of God. And also Paul says that means you are to walk in love. But at the heart of what he says is that Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. That is, Paul says, yes, I want you to be imitators of God. I want you to walk in love. But you need to understand that you are connected. You have a bond. You have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm trying to let you know that this subject of Christ and the church is just not some theological truth that has no relevance for our walk with God. If you understand the relationship that exists between Christ and the church, then you will understand how to live your life. You should never, ever forget this truth, this doctrine. And so I want us for the second time to look at this important subject of Christ in the church. When you look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, Paul talks about three relationships. And these relationships speak of Christ in the church. And we already seen the first relationship, and that's the relationship between Christ and the church. He speaks very generally, and he lets us know that the best picture of the relationship between Christ and the church is marriage. That might shock us, but when Paul talks about that special bond between Christ and the church, he quotes Genesis 2.24 and then says, I'm speaking not only of marriage, but I'm speaking of the relationship between Christ and the church. And then also last Sunday, we looked at the relationship of Christ to the church, not between the church. In Christ, but to the church. There is a role that the Lord Jesus Christ has in relationship to the church. And we saw last Sunday that his first role is that he is the leader and savior of the church. He is the Lord and savior of the church. Don't ever get it wrong. No senior pastor, no deacon board, no deaconess board, no individual is the head of the church except the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we talk about the head of the church, we're talking about this universal church that every genuine believer is a part of. And I warned us, you can be a part of Fairview. You can be a member of this church and even a member in good standing. And go straight to hell. But you cannot be a member of the universal church and go to hell. 
Because the only way you can become a part of the universal church is that you have to put your faith and your trust in Christ alone for salvation. And when God saves you, he places you in the body of Christ. He places you in the universal church. We do our best at Fairview to make sure that each person who becomes a member here is truly saved. But you might be able to fake us out. You might be able to trick us. Well, you might be a member of this church, but if you're not a member of the body of Christ, you will die in your sins. Christ is the Lord and the Savior of the church. But what I want us to focus in on today is this second thing, and I know the outline is long, but we're only going to cover one thing, and that is when it comes to the relationship of Christ to the church, Christ is the lover of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is the lover of the church. Yes, he's the Lord of the church, but when we come to verses 25 to 28, 27, he's the lover of the church. And that's important for us to see. And in order for us to fully understand this, there's five words that I want to share with you in these verses that capture this important relationship, this love relationship that Christ has with the church. And the five words are given in three verses, and they are the word loved, gave, cleansed, sanctify, and present. When you understand each one of those words, it gives you a comprehensive picture of the fact that Christ is the lover of the church. And the first word, our term, that tells us that Christ is the lover of the church is the word loved. If you look at the middle part of verse 25, after telling husbands and commanding them to love their wives, Paul goes on to say, Christ also loved the church. Don't miss that. It's crystal clear. Christ loved the church. And Paul is not talking about something happening in the present or in the future. He's looking back and he's writing to these Christians at Ephesus and he says, I want you to understand. I want you to realize. I'm giving you a very matter of fact statement. Christ loved the church. That is, he has sought the church's best possible good. And he's done that sometime, Paul says, in the past. He loved the church, and he'll say that again. He said it in earlier in chapter 5, verse 2, that, that Christ loved you. He makes it personal. You know, it's one thing to grab hold of Christ loved the church. I'm a member of the church, the universal church. But Paul says Christ loved you as a member of the body of Christ. Here, Paul is not talking about Christ's feelings or Christ's emotions for the church. He's talking about 
Christ's actions toward the church. His actions that convey that he seeks the best possible good for each individual who has now become a part of the body of Christ. Paul can say, Christ loved the church. And those might sound like simple words to us, but they're profound words. It is hard to wrap our minds around the reality that Christ loved the church. In fact, in chapter 3, Paul prays for the Ephesians that they might actually come to know and comprehend Christ's love. Paul understood that without the help of God, without the enablement of God, you and I just won't get it. Uh, This is not some secular truth. This is not some truth that we learn on our own. We need the help of God, the enablement of God, so that we might grasp that Christ loved the church. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul, Paul prays that God may be able to help you Christians to comprehend with all of the saints. Comprehend what? Comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And, and to know the love of Christ, which is to pass knowledge. D- do you hear that? Paul is saying, Ephesians, I'm praying for you. I'm crying out to God for you that you might get a handle on what it means that Christ loves the church. And so what he says, uh, that Christ's love is wide. It's long. It's high. It's deep. And, And he says on top of all of that, It's unknowable. It surpasses all knowledge. But I'm praying that somehow, some way, you will get a little glimpse of Christ's love for you. And so I can really preach Sunday after Sunday after Sunday about this subject that is incomprehensible and is past knowing, so to speak. And we could just add a little thimble drop of knowledge to us each And every Sunday. But when you talk about comprehending and understanding the love of Christ, it's like diving into the Pacific Ocean and trying to swim across it. You'll never get to the other side. It's impossible. And the love of Christ is that magnificent, that marvelous, that wonderful that you need God to open up your eyes to see this love that is wide, that is long, that is high, and that is deep. The love of Christ for the church. And he loved us before there was even a church. He loved us before the church even came into existence. In other words, he loved us when we were unlovely. He loved us when we were not worthy and deserving of love. 
loved is the first word that helps us to grasp the meaning of the fact that Christ is the lover of the church. The second word that reveals that Christ is the lover of the church is gave. Gave. Paul says at the end of verse 25, and Christ gave himself up for her. Talking about the ultimate expression, the clear-cut example of Christ's love for the church. It's interesting, Paul doesn't turn to the fact that Christ left heaven's glory and was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't turn to the fact that on Christmas Day, Christ was born and he lived a perfect life without sin. But no, he says, when I want to give you the ultimate example, the ultimate proof, the greatest evidence of Christ's love for the church, I take you to the cross. The the cross that we sung about earlier, the, the cross, the death of Christ, is the ultimate and greatest example that Christ loved the church. If you ever question it, if you ever doubt it, if you ever think that it's not possible, go to the cross and linger there and stay there and meditate on the death of Christ. Paul said not only did Christ love us, but he says, I want to give you a concrete example. I want to give you the ultimate proof that he loved us. And that's Calvary. That's Jesus' death on the cross. What marvelous words when Paul says, gave himself up. Gave himself up. Not an animal, not an angel, but gave himself up. And that is a truth that is found in the rest of the New Testament. Like I said before, Ephesians 5, 2. Earlier in this book, Paul says the same thing, that Christ gave himself up for who? For us. He makes it more personal. In our verse, he says, for the church, but here he says, for us. For Paul Felix, for Marlene Felix, for us. He gave himself up as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Galatians 1.4 puts it this way who gave himself for our sins. That's why he gave himself. It's not because we were righteous. It's not because we were holy. He gave himself for our sins. That's why Jesus had to leave glory and be conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit and is born on Christmas Day and lives a perfect life and dies on the cross. It's because of Our sins, our sins nailed him to the cross. And Paul is not even thinking about the sins of unbelievers. He's talking about the sins of those who eventually put their faith and their trust in Christ. 
He gave himself up for us. It should have been you. It should have been me. But he died in my place, bearing my sins in his body that I might have life. He gave himself up. And if that's not enough, 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. His death on the cross is, can, can, is available to all. If you're here without Christ, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, please know that Christ gave himself up as a ransom to redeem you for all. And if that's not enough, Paul says in Titus 2.14, that Christ gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. He gave himself up. Marvelous words. Unbelievable words. To think that the King of glory, the Lord of Lord, would leave heaven's glory and come to this earth and die in my place and pay the penalty for my sins. He's the lover of the church. He loved the church and he gave himself up for the church. But there's a third word that I want you to see. And it's in verse 26, and it's the word cleansed. And I need to put that word in its proper context. Paul writes in verse 26 about Christ, having cleansed her, that is, the church, by the washing of water with the word. And what Paul says, the church has been cleansed. The, the church has been purified that those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ alone for salvation, when they got saved, they were cleansed. And so Paul can look at the body of Christ made up of genuine believers and say to the Ephesians, you've been cleansed. You have been purified. You dirty, filthy, wicked sinners have been cleansed. Don't lose sight of that. You don't have to clean, cleanse a person who's clean. It's the one who's dirty. It's one who's filthy. And, and this idea is letting us know that when you're without Christ, you might think there's no big issue, but you got a major problem. You're filthy, you're dirty. Your sins have defiled you. And if you die without Christ, you will pay the consequences of your sins. But Paul says that the church has been cleansed. Some people think this refers to water baptism. It doesn't have anything to do with water baptism. In fact, I got myself in trouble. Uh, saying that the baptism of a person, that if you aren't a Christian, you go down a dry devil and you come up a wet devil. And so this person is now threatened to cut off my head and do things to my family. 
He thought I was talking about him. I guess in reality, as I look back, I was. He went down a dry devil. He came up a wet devil. Baptism doesn't change anybody. God doesn't call us to dunk people in order for them to be saved. This is not a verse saying this is how we get clean, cleansed. Now, I realize, you know, the pool, the water up there and it might wash off something. Hopefully not too much. But the reality is baptism does not cleanse you. What cleanses you is putting your faith and your trust in Christ alone for salvation. As James says in chapter 1, verse 18, that God brought us forth. He caused us to be born again by the word of truth. And what that means, my friends, that in order for you to be saved, you must hear the gospel. You must hear the good news of Jesus Christ. James says there's no way that God can bring you forth or cause you to be born again unless it's by the word of truth. And so when we are brought forth by the word of truth, the scripture says we've been regenerated. That's what Paul is talking about here. The washing of the water by the word, the cleansing is referring to regeneration. When you're born again, when eternal life has been imparted to you at the moment of salvation. Paul says in Titus, it's the washing of regeneration in Titus 3.5. When you're regenerated, when God does that work in your life where he saves you, you're washed. You're washed. You're made clean. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Paul writing to the Corinthians, reminding them of their past. He says, and such were some of you. What do you mean, Paul? He says, some of you were fornicators. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were effeminate, that is, sissies. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. But you were washed. You were washed. And if you look at our backgrounds, we're in that list somehow, some way. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, church, you have been cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. In response to the gospel, you have been made clean. You dirty, filthy Christians. Prior to self, you've been made clean. You've been washed. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Christ is the lover of the church. And he has cleansed the church. But there's two more words I want you to see. And these two words that we're going to look at really deal with the future. Paul has been talking about the past. When he said Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church, he's talking about prior to the church coming into existence in Acts 2. 
that Christ loved us prior to our salvation, prior to the church even coming into existence. And when he says that Christ cleansed us, he's talking about what happens at salvation. But now Paul is going to focus in on the future. And one of the words that he uses, the fourth word that makes known that Christ is the lover of the church, is the word sanctify. Sanctify. I know some of you are getting an education in theology. But these are wonderful words, magnificent words that we need to understand as Christians. It adds richness to what God has done for us in saving us. And so Paul says the purpose of Christ's death on the cross is that you might be sanctified, that he might sanctify the church. And that's a wonderful truth, that he might sanctify the church. You see, the death of Christ is not simply about the forgiveness of sins. Some people just think that I'm going to put my faith in Christ so that my sins are forgiven. It includes that, but the death of Christ is also about breaking the power of sin in our lives. First John chapter 3, verses 5 and 8 talks about the fact that Christ appeared to Take away sins. Either you can have your sins on you or Christ can take them away by you putting your trust in him. But he didn't just appear to take away sin, but John says he also appeared that he might destroy the works of the devil. The the last thing that Christ wants for the members of his body, is for the works of the devil to be displayed, to be exhibited, to be a part of your life. When you're angry with someone, that's the work of the devil. When you lie to someone, that's the work of the devil. When you're involved in immorality, that's the work of the devil. And John says, Christ appeared. Not only to take away your sin so that all your sin have been washed away and cleansed, but also to break the power of sin in your life. That's what sanctification is all about. And Paul says Christ died on the cross in order that he might sanctify the church. And sanctification can be spoken of positionally, that is, at the moment of salvation, a person is separated from sin and separated to God. But that's not what Paul is talking about. All of these Christians at Ephesus, they're sanctified positionally. But sanctification relates to practice. We need to be sanctified practically. And that's what it means to grow as a Christian. As a Christian, God doesn't want you in diapers your whole Christian life. He doesn't want you on Gerbers your whole time as a Christian. God wants us to grow. So if somebody hadn't seen us in a year spiritually, they can see we've grown. We've matured. We're becoming more and more like Christ. 
That's why Peter said in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the only way that can happen, at least one of the primary ways, is through the word. No word, no sanctification. If the word is not a part of your life, you will not be further set apart from sin and devoted to God. Jesus said in his prayer, Father, sanctify them. That's what he wanted for a believer. Sanctify them. How? By thy truth, by your word. Thy word is truth. So that's why we say come to Sunday school. That's why we say participate in Wednesday night Bible study or go to LABTS, go somewhere. Because you cannot grow. You cannot mature apart from the word of God. Sanctification happens. One of the means that God uses is his word. But even though we've talked about past sanctification and present, there's a future sanctification. There's a time where we're going to see Jesus Christ face to face. And we will be completely separated from sin and completely devoted to God. That the struggle, the battle with sin will be over. Because sin will be gone. But Christ, the lover of the church, gave himself that the church might be sanctified positionally, practically, and also in the future, ultimately. The last word that I want us to consider with regards to Christ as the lover of the church is the word present that's found in verse 27. And again, it's looking toward the future. Looking toward the future. Yes, Christ loved us. He gave himself up for us. He cleansed us. And and his design and his goal is to sanctify us. But there's a greater goal. Not only that we would ultimately be set apart from sin and devoted to God, but also he wants to present us. Look at verse 27. It's a strange verse. That he, that Christ might present to himself the church. I've officiated weddings. I had the privilege of walking my daughter down an aisle at the renewer of her wedding vows. I've seen a lot of weddings, but I've never seen the husband escorting the wife to be down the aisle. I've seen a father, I've seen a mother, I've seen a trio, etc. But here is an interesting picture. Here, Paul says that Christ's ultimate goal, why he died on the cross, why he gave himself up for us, is that he might present to himself, the church in all of his glory. What Paul is saying, Christ is going to walk through the door with the bride, the church. And Christ is going to escort the church all the way down to in front of God, so to speak. And he's going to present the church 
to himself. It's not going to be anybody else doing it. Because no one else can do it. No one can accomplish what Christ wants to accomplish. He's going to present the church to himself without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. Now, you, you look at these brides on wedding day, I, I marvel. Sometimes I say, who is that? <laughs> the makeup is on, the eyelash, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm glad the veil is down. So I need a veil sometimes over my face. I'm startled sometimes. But, but, but they, they're beautiful. And you're watching, you're looking at them, you're saying, ooh, ah. You don't say, I don't think you ever say, oh, that's an ugly bride. A beautiful bride. And Christ is going to present the church to himself as a beautiful bride. No spot. No blemishes. And not due to makeup covering up, but no blemishes, no wrinkles, referring to aging, etc. But he's going to present the church himself, a glorious church, a beautiful church, a, a church that has no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing, a church that's not defiled and not dirty. And I know it's hard for us to imagine that because we look at our lives now. And we say, Lord Jesus, you got a lot to do so that I will be without spot and wrinkle or any such thing. But Christ says he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to present the church to himself holy and blameless. And my friends, if that's our destiny, if that's the reality, of every genuine believer in Jesus Christ, that Christ is going to present us to himself without spot and wrinkle or any such thing, that he's going to present us to himself as holy and blameless. What kind of people should we be right now? How should we live day in and day out knowing that our destiny is that we are going to be holy and blameless. I mentioned this before, but my mentor, Dr. Robert Thomas, the late Dr. Robert Thomas, I heard him say on more than one occasion that he was trying to live his life as much as he could to the glory of God here on earth so that when he got to heaven, there would not be much of a change at all. Living now, trying to be as much as possible by God's grace and enabling, so that when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be blown out of the water and say, who is that? Some of us aren't going to recognize ourselves. We're not going to be perfect here on earth, but we should be striving to be holy in every area of our life. And so these are the five words that capture the Lord as the lover of the church. He loved, he gave himself up, he cleansed, he sanctifies, and he will present the church in all of her glory. What a lover 
of our soul. That he has gone to such great lengths for you and for me. Jesus said it well in John chapter 15, verse 13 in the upper room discourse. Greater love hath no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Jesus is the lover of the church. He's laid down his life for his friends. I trust that we will never, ever forget this great love of Christ for you and for me that is revealed to us in our passage of Scripture. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the lover of the church. Thank you that he's the lover of every genuine believer, that he's the lover of our soul. Father, we can't fully grasp that or understand it, but we pray that with your help that we might know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love for us. Help us to look at your word and grow by your grace in how much you love us. And we're thankful that there's always the cross to remind us of your love. But thank you for the many different ways, day in and day out, that you love us and keep us and watch over us and take care of us. We're thankful. We're grateful. May we respond to your love by living our lives for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.